Blog Talk Radio. had dug to them. She also has lived 
with lupus since she was 29, a painful autoimmune disease that has long been linked to adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. Monica became a life coach and a therapist and notes, quote, I finally found a way to forgive the unforgivable and to firmly keep anyone and everything harmful out of my life, unquote. She's earned her master's degree in metaphysical science and counseling and is well on her way to earning a PhD in that same field. I hope to further use my story as a way to become of service and to help those along the path to their own healing because I now know that hope and help is available. Okay, and with that, I'll say hi, Monica. Hello, Annie. How are you? I'm doing well. It's it's strange to me looking at the switchboard and not seeing you there, but I'll get used to it. <laughs> Uh, listeners, we have we have a merged call because we couldn't figure out how to call in. So, all right. Um, so go ahead, Monica. Say hello. Hi, everyone. Hello. How are you doing? And welcome to NASCA Scan. Um, I would like to tell everyone first of all, before starting, that everything that I try to do, do a few things in the morning for myself when I wake up. First of all, I want to tell you guys that you are loved. So just start your day by waking up, giving yourself a big hug. I love you, Monica, or I love you, Annie, or I love you, Bill, or I love you, Victoria, whatever your name is. Give yourself a big hug and give yourself some love. We have to remember that we deserve it and we are worthy regardless of the type of trauma that we have endured. With that being said, I would like to welcome you all again to this podcast for the National Association of Adult Survivors. Monica, I'm sorry, dog. Monica, let me check with Philip and make sure that you're being heard okay with our connection. Okay. Okay. Hello, Philip. Philip, are you there? Hi, can you hear Monica okay? Yes, Annie. Okay, great. Thank you. I'll talk to you later, fellas. I'm going to put you back on hold. All right, we have success. Back to you, Monica. All right. Tonight, my topic is going to be called emotional endurance. And I want us to all realize that even though we are past, the physicality of the actual abuse. As children, we've had to carry the impact of that and what I call the dirty little secrets of that with us and that's hidden and buried within our emotions with us. So emotional endurance is going to be something that we've got to dig deep in And it's going to be one of those things that you're going to put in your toolbox that you're going to have to learn to deal with on your healing journey with what happened to us on an emotional level. Um, We have also got to learn to forgive ourselves 
as we often look back on the trauma when it happened and the adult brain that we have now is wondering why the brain of the child, while we didn't do this, we didn't do that, we didn't tell someone, we didn't run away, we didn't fight that, you know, you just don't have those tools as a child that we have now as an adult. So we got to first begin with forgiving ourselves and understanding that the emotional part of what happened with us may not fully ever leave 100%. And that's why I call it emotional endurance, because we're going to have to take some part of it with us throughout our life because we have the memories of what happened. But we should be able to develop the tools as we heal to take the memories with us, but we no longer have to take the same pain with us as we're moving along in our lives, if that makes sense. So I'm going to start with a couple of topics today, and if anyone wants to chime in or I'll ask Annie if she has something that she wants to add, please do. We'll stop and let you um, chime in and give your thoughts or give your opinions. Great. All right. So first of all, for me, I want to give and start out with giving a quick prayer of thanks and a prayer of appreciation and a prayer prayer for inspiration. For one of the icons in my life, because in order for me as a child and a teenager to escape the pain of the abuse that I endured from my parents, physical and emotional endurance, and even my brother through sexual molestation. It's always been music for me. One of my icons was Tina Turner, and we lost her yesterday at the age of 83. So not only was her music inspiring to me as a young person, as I got older and I was able to read her autobiography, seeing her uh, in several interviews, and she began to talk about her spirituality as a Buddhist. I thought she spoke so openly and eloquently, uh, not only about the abuse that she endured in her marriage with her former partner, but she also touched on, especially in the book, she touched on the basis of being a child of a mother specifically the mother. She didn't speak much about the father. But being the child of a mother who simply just did not want her, right? She had always felt that. Not that the mother ever said that to her, but that was something that she always felt. That was something that always rang specifically true to me because my own mother, who's very toxic, very cold, um, has all the traits of being a narcissist, that mother actually told me twice in my lifetime, in my younger years, of course, living at home, actually told me twice in my lifetime that I never wanted you, right? That comes out in her heat of an exchange and a standard mother-daughter argument and whatever was going on. 
So it was, I never wanted you once. She said that. And then I wish you were never born. So I got that twice from her in my life. And when a mother uses that against a child, when you're still a child, it's a wound from a dagger, the longest, thickest, hottest, straight-out-of-the-fire dagger that you feel can stab your heart. You never bleed. Nothing ever really oozes out. But when that dagger is removed and you go back to that whatever normal relationship after a mother says that to her child, that's an open, gaping wound that at the moment you think will never heal. And it changes the dynamic of how you view this person is supposed to be your mother. Right? So that leads me to my first point, that in childhood, right, we have got several points that we've got to look at as far as what's going on around us. So one of them will be speaking to that toxic father or mother. Um, the signs of that is, if you look back on it, to see how the parent reacted with you. They speak with a cold and unfriendly tone. It could be very often. It could be very seldom. It's just one of those things where they speak to you as if you're just the most worthless piece of you-know-what on the earth, right? And if we've ever had those experiences with mothers or fathers, um, I do often find that, the at least for me, the actual physical abuse came down from my father mostly, but the emotional abuse and neglect came down from my mother. So in the instant she blurts out and she tells you, I never wanted you, I never loved you. And again, in the instance of reading that about Tina Turner, that was something that as she grew older, it just kind of got swept under the rug and it never got talked about with her and her mother. But for us, it's one of those things that you put a check mark on it. We do ever try to have the conversation with the mother later on in our lives to discuss exactly what she's done to us. You've got to be very careful on how you tread that because, again, the narcissist is going to do everything they can to protect themselves before they begin to allow themselves to peel the layers back and to say, yes, I did that, or yes, I'm sorry. And the reason for that is they possibly are a child of abuse themselves. They've endured it themselves. But they're in a position to where they've been taught not to speak or not to talk about those things. So with that being said, I want to ask right now, uh, anyone or any listening, anyone that's listening in right now, have you had a serious uh, similar experience with a cold and unfriendly, neglective mother specifically? Let's talk about that. And maybe what she, something that she did or something that she said 
incidents really make you feel unwanted or unloved? Okay, I'll say yes, but before I speak, I'd like to call on Philip. Let me chime him in. Hello, Philip. Would you like to respond to Monica? Yes, my mother's a narcissist. Hi, Philip. How are you? Hello, Monica. Go ahead and share. What are some of the things that maybe you've had with a mother um, that was cold and unfriendly and maybe just made you feel like she didn't want you around? She was emotionally neglectful. And she very, sometimes she just acts like she doesn't care how I feel. Mm-hmm. Has this been something um, you've been able to approach her and talk to her about? She just denies it. Well, that's what happened. Um, I recently just had a phone call with my mother, who's well into her late 70s. I, myself, am almost 50, and it was regarding... um, a medical issue, so I needed to speak with her about some things on, like, a medical history, you know, something that's happened with other people in our family or anything like that. And the conversation, when I began to ask for her help, veered so far off course that she didn't say this time, I don't want you, I wish you were never born. But she did give me, and I'm going to say this happened within the last seven days, with communication that I keep very seldom with them about every three to four or five years. I will call and just to give a 10-minute little check-in, hello, how are you doing, and move on, because that's as much of non-negative communication I can get with them. So the communication with her has been about a little bit more in the past three or four months than what I wanted, but it was because I needed to get some help on medical issues. And this past time, I began to question her again about um, her interactions with me. Um, I need you to understand that your behavior, your tone with me are unacceptable. Be calm to me. Speak with a sense of respect to me. I was not at all touching on the abuse that happened to me. But unfortunately, I'm dealing with health issues because of the abuse that happened to me. And because the adult in me, she heard that voice. She's no longer heard the childlike mommy, mommy, mommy voice. She didn't hear that. She began to get irate. The calmer I stayed, the more of an uptick she took. And again, in one of those fits that she has, when she can't or won't take the time to verbalize her thoughts, 
she actually said, everything you're going through right now is your own fault. And so I had to stop the conversation. I said, how dare you? How dare you? You are not going to continue to be negative to me or spiteful or toxic to me. I'm battling health issues right now. And you have the audacity to tell me that my health issues are my own fault. And in the same split second, he said, I didn't say that. That's not what I said. And I had to tell her, well, now what I'm not going to deal with is you being a liar. If you don't remember things you say from one second to the next, then that I'm going to write it off as if maybe you're moving into a stage of your life. Alzheimer's, dementia, or something is settling in. But what you're not going to do is take a 30-second conversation that we just had with words that you blurted out and turn around and try to save faith and say that you didn't say that. I'm holding you accountable, and you will not speak to me that way. So at that point, in order to get her in a responsive mode, I realized my mother is still very much in the emotional neglective space that she was when I was a kid. Years ago, I had a conversation with her about whatever it was. And on the phone, she called me crazy. You're crazy. The things that you're talking about, you're just crazy. And I did the same thing. You will not speak to me like that. You will not call me crazy. You will not call me out of my name or place me out of my character. You know what my name is. You signed my birth certificate. My name is not crazy. My name is Monica. You owe me an apology. But I didn't say that. It's always that. They immediately go back into the protective mode of themselves. I had to scream into the phone, you owe me an apology for what you just said to me. That immediately, me raising my voice, she responded to that. said, well, I'm sorry, I, but it was still a half-assed apology. I don't remember saying it, but I'm sorry. So what I realized is she's still in the very much mode of the abuse mode where certain words and certain things you say, she doesn't receive them or can't digest them unless you do it in the emotionally neglective way that she's used to. And so ultimately, that's what I had to do the other day. I don't like raising my voice to her because it's, you know, it's just not good for me. But I had to tell her again, you will not do that to me. You, How dare you? How dare you? And again, it came, well, I'm sorry. I just don't remember saying it. So I realized that's all I'm ever going to get out of her. It's never going to be a true um anything truly impactful on her part or she actually is able to change how she speaks to those that call her out on her BS. I have nieces and nephews. Uh, nephew that's traveling in from out of town this weekend. Actually, he just got married from Germany. She speaks perfectly fine with them in a very empathetic and compassionate voice. 
but because she never abused them. She abused her own children. And besides myself and my older brother, I know that typically we are healing ourselves. And so when we speak with her, we just have to ask these questions. You know, we pose the idea, why did this happen? Why did that happen? But with the grandchildren, I know that she's capable of doing it, but only because they she still sees them and they still react to her in the baby mode. So it's grandma this and grandma that, even though they're older, 16, 17, 18, 20-something-year-old teenagers and young people. She is capable of doing the compassionate thing. But as I always said, and I tried to tell her, no one taught her how to be the mother past the baby bottles and the diapering stage. So when we actually began, there's a TV show, if anyone can remember, The Sopranos from years ago. And I believe it's in one of the very first seasons where the character Tony is seeing his psychiatrist about his relationship with his mother. And he's talking about, how she doesn't care, she doesn't admit things, you know, he's trying to get his relationship better with his mother. And the psychiatrist makes the point that the mother could never deal with him growing up and developing his own personality and becoming his own young man because she couldn't puppet them anymore. So when you're a baby, literally, you have no voice. You're just there kicking and screaming and crying. And you're so dependent on mama, think mama to give me a bottle, I need mama to hug me. I need mama to change my diaper. When you're one year old or two years old, you're still figuring it out. But when you're starting to become that older kid at 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and the abuse, for whatever reason, is settling in, whatever type of abuse that it is, somewhere in your voice, you've spoken back, right? So we all get that from the parents. Don't talk back to me. Well, you could just simply be speaking out about the abuse. As the, the spirit in you knows that, hey, I don't want to be hit. I don't want to be molested. I don't want to be slapped. And some part in you is going to speak out or act out. And at that point, that mother has no tools on how to deal with your personality as it is growing and changing and becoming more independent and you no longer need her. So for one, she feels you no longer need her because you're not in diapers anymore. Two, she doesn't have the tools, the emotionally mature tools, to deal with what's actually happening to you. She doesn't have to be the abuser herself, but she actually doesn't have the tools to deal with the abuse if you're going through it. She could be aware maybe of the, the father molesting you, she doesn't have the tools to deal with the father. My mother was perfectly aware of my father abusing us. And I actually had times where I told her before, I believe my mother set us up to get hit or get abused because it could be that something happened at the house during the day or anything. I remember at times that my mother would be at home cooking dinner. We'd get home from school. We'd do our homework. We'd allow to watch a little TV. Uh, we'd go outside and play, right? And then maybe my mother would sit down and watch her favorite TV shows or something. My father gets home from work. 
And so my mother gets up to prepare dinner. My father comes in on the tirade. Who the hell left the TV on? Why is the TV on? Why are the lights on in the room and no one's here? We're already outside playing, right? So we've left the house. My mother was in the house watching her TV shows. And she would literally do something like, well, the kids must have done it. Or the kids did it. So we get called into the house to get ready for dinner. And we get smacked coming into the house, you know, by our dad. Haven't I told you guys about leaving the TV on? You know, things like that. But speaking about it later, she would deny it. Mm. But that, in her mode, was to protect herself, to keep my father from abusing her or screaming at her, yelling at her. And she always blamed us as the kids to, yes, be emotionally neglected. She's not going to talk about certain things. She is going to either flat out deny it or she goes into her shell where she shuts down and she has nothing to say. And either one of those is not helpful to our growth because they did nothing to address the issue at the time. They're doing nothing to address it years later at this time. And unfortunately, it's still hurting us, but guess what? They're still hurting themselves because they've learned somewhere along the way to bury their own emotions and their own behaviors and to not speak about things. The thing you can do is to continue to pile that dirty trash and, and dirty clothes up into that hamper in the closet under the rug. Sooner or later, it's going to start to spill over. Right? Mm-hmm. Anyone have any more thoughts on that point? Phyllis, how about you? No, I don't have any more thoughts on it. Thank you. Well, um, I wrote down a couple of things um, that especially how you – your mother will protect herself. Your mother will protect herself. You know, she, no matter what I say, she's going to protect herself. Um, my mother has passed away, which um, about um, golly, going on ten years now, and so I don't have to deal with her anymore. But when she was living, she was mean to me. She would, when I saw her, she would just point out anything that she found fault with in me and she would bring up embarrassing things from my childhood and and just anything to make me feel bad and I didn't want to go see her because I always felt bad you know but I I kept seeing her up until she was in her 80s and I went and and visited my my brother, and and I discovered that his partner was exactly like my mother, just as abusive as my mother, and he was treating my brother that way. And when I saw that, knew I could do nothing about it. I cut my mother off because I blamed her for that, and I stopped talking to her for about six months. And uh, I did eventually... Uh, 
go back to talking to her and visiting her. Um, I don't know why. I guess I just felt like I had to. So, but I'll never forget when I graduated from college, my dad said, oh, your mom's so jealous. (laughs) That was his congratulations to me. Oh, your mom's so jealous. So I wanted to share also my grandmother, my, you know, alternate mom who's supposed to love you. She told me when I was a little girl that she hated me. I was probably like four or five. She said, I hate you. And I believed her, and I felt hated by her the rest of my life. I don't know why she hated me. Well, when I was born, I brought I brought staph infection home from the hospital, so everybody in my family got these painful boils on their bodies from me. And so I think they held that against me. It wasn't my fault. Of course not. But again, this goes to show you how emotionally immature they are to actually apply you as a helpless, dependent baby, as if you actually have the power to transfer an infection to them, right? As if you were some type of witch with a magic wand. So they, they don't want to deal with the ignorance, and we all have ignorance from one generation to the other. The next generation is going to be smarter and more capable than us. So they actually don't believe that what they're doing is, uh, what they're enduring is a cause sometimes of their actual own fault. Or it could just be a happenstance, you know. So how can a baby be at fault? For giving everyone an infection. How about looking at the fact that back during that time, maybe no one in the medical world taught them how to protect themselves when they go home so that they don't get infected with the staph infection right. from the baby who's contagious. Yeah. And so they just went about their lives, touching you, picking you up, kissing you, doing whatever it is that they do to interact with kids, knowing that you have an infection but no one in that world at that time told them to not do those things until you healed or until you got better. Mm-hmm. So how does that that little thing then actually, they look for something that they can fault you with to actually say, well, this is the reason I feel this way because it's your fault, because you did this when you were a six-month-old baby. That is yeah. the absolute stupidest, most ignorant whatever you've heard. And when you tr- if you've ever tried to have the conversation with them about it as an adult and you use the word ignorance, then, of course, they feel offended because, well, you called me ignorant. I'm not calling you ignorant. I'm calling the way you approach the situation or the way you view the situation as ignorant. You didn't give yourself the staff infection in. So how do you yep. have the power to give it to anyone else? Right. This is what I told my mother the other day. I'm in need of a surgery, lady. Do you mean to tell me that I actually have the power to wheel the dysfunctioning parts of my body onto myself to the point that I actually have to have a surgery? That I did that to myself? Are you? Do you hear yourself when you speak? So if you obviously don't, time to monitor your own words before you speak to me. 
Speak in a respectful manner. Speak in a thoughtful manner. And again, you now have become an adult yourself, and that is something that they don't have the tools to deal with because at that point, she can't say that with my mother, she can't say that I was disrespecting her by raising my voice or arguing with her because I wasn't. So what she did, she just went into the combative mode. Well, I have to do this. I have to do this. I don't have time for this. And I don't know why you keep – and so she just automatically went into what I call the robber rabbit mode. She starts speaking and firing off stuff so quickly that you actually don't have a way into the conversation. Unless you yell at her and scream at her, then she'll stop. So I've learned not to do that because even if I do that as a way or means to get her to stop, the first thing she's going to say is, when you're screaming and you're yelling at me, it's, it's, I don't like that. I'm your mother. Why are you yelling at me? She goes into, again, turns it around on you again. So they actually have been taught to blame a child and use that fault or that blame throughout your childhood as if you you as a child at whatever age, you actually have the power to hurt them. And we really don't. We're powerless. All that means is whatever you were existing at that point, whatever was happening to you at that point, they did not have the emotional wherewithal to deal with it and solve the problem as adults. So they just blame you for it. Yeah. So anything else with your mother or grandmother? Oh, my mother and grandmother. Not really. I just, uh, well, yeah, one thing, before my mother passed away, she did ask me, she said, about six months before she died, did my, did my father ever do anything to me? She asked me that. And he, he did, indeed. I said no. I could not face up and have a conversation with my mother about it. And this was when I was already speaking publicly about the sexual abuse. I couldn't talk to my mother about it, though. So I said, no. And that's all I have to share. Well, at that point, you're probably still dealing with mistrust with her. You know, even though she asked the question, you just didn't trust her enough to tell the truth. Yeah. It wasn't a safe space for you. You know, and uh, who knows what she might have said. Right. She could have asked you the question and then immediately turn around and weaponize it against you. Right, which would be normal for her. Right, right. Well, now I'm glad I said no. Thank you for telling me that. <laughs> That's why I said no, because she would totally have done that. Well, at that point, good for you for at least being able to um, go into a mode where you could protect yourself because you were probably... 99% right on what her facts would have been. Yeah. Um, 
because I've been there. You know, it happened with me, with my mother when I was younger, 11, 12, or 13. My brother had stopped molesting me at that point, but I remember being a young lady and started my menstrual cycle. And, you know, I'm still trying to sneak into the bedroom at night or sneak into the bathroom while I'm in the shower. And I just remember telling him, I just felt so icky about my body, you know, as we do as your women during those times. And I just told him, like, no, you're going to stop. I'm going to tell mother and dad. So that was always the weapon for us as kids to get us to kind of leave each other alone if we were bugging each other that I'm going to tell mom and dad. So it never happened again after that. But maybe a year or so after it stopped, somewhere within that year, my mother asked me, has your brother ever been messing with you? That was the word they used back then, not molesting, you know. Has your brother ever been messing with you? And I said, no. I told her no. But my 12-year-old brain at that point knew that I did not trust her enough to tell her the truth. Because Mm -hmm. even as kids, if we did do something mischievous, some slight thing or whatever, as kids do, you're misbehaving. Well, you're not going to get in trouble. Just tell me the truth. You know, that was always said. We tell the truth anyway, we still get punished. We still get hit. We still get smacked. We still got cursed out. We still got whatever. So it was always the lie that they used to pull the truth out of us, and that makes you feel that I cannot trust this person. And so when it comes to you with something as big as, in their head, they actually have some type of proof that something has happened, or they know specifically something's happened, and it's eating away at them, which is why they ask you the question. They've done so much to us in the past up until that point that we know that I cannot tell this person the truth. It's just not safe. She's going to hit me. She's going to curse at me. She's going to scream at me. She's going to do something. So you do what you need to do to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. You know so, what she again, would do, too, is she would tell everyone she knows. <laughs> She was such a gossip, and she loved to gossip about her children. And, again, that's their way of, um, that's still emotional neglect. So, about the kids and the things that they're doing, and, again, that toxic mother, you are just destroying their world because you are just so horrible as a kid. And I just don't know what to do with her. They will say things like that, and it could honestly be the truth. She did not have the tools on how to deal with us in our growth and journey to become an adult because she only had enough tools to deal with you with diapering and bottles, you know? Yeah. What's the first thing that we shove into a little girl's hand when they're a kid for a Christmas present or a birthday present? What is the very first thing you'd like to give little girl? Dolls. There you go. Yep. That doll is unmoving. It doesn't speak. It doesn't do anything until you pick it up 
and pretend to change his clothes and pretend to drink the milk bottle, you're not having a conversation with a three-year-old kid about how a baby is actually made. You're not doing that, you know, through mm-hmm. sex and this and that. You're not having that conversation. But you'll shove a doll in her hand. And this is your baby. You got to take this is your baby. Play with your baby. So they grow up with the sense that that's what mothering is supposed to be. You being a living, breathing replica of that doll. But when you start to speak, you start to have your own thoughts, you start to have your own feelings, they have never developed the techniques to deal with you at that point. And so, yes, you become the topic of her frustration. And again, by her being the gossip and talking so much to my mom, did the same thing. To, on the phone at all hours of the day and night about what you did as a kid, what you did to her. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If you uh, fell down and scraped your knee and you had to come into the house and ask for a Band-Aid, you scraped your own knee. You're receiving that pain. But somehow she sees that as an attack against her that maybe she had to stop watching her soap opera to go mm-hmm. and get the first aid kit to clean up your knee and help you get better. And then it becomes your own fault that you fell off the bike and scraped your knee. Well, who bought me the bike? And who taught me how to ride the bike? And falling down and getting hurt and scraping your knee is a part of life. You get up, you dust yourself off, you get better, you get up and you get back on and you try again. Well, I didn't get that from my mother. If I disturb her stories or her talking with her friends because I scraped my knee, then I got punished. Well, go put your bike up and go in your room. You understand? Because now I became a problem for her as a mother that she actually had to stop and fix something that she didn't want to do. Talking to her friends or watching a soap opera was of greater importance than actually stopping in that moment and caring for her child who needed her help. There's an episode on Oprah once I watched, uh, not Oprah, um, Iyala Vazan. She had a show out called Six by Life. And on this one show, it was a interracial couple, which initially I thought it, the problems in the family was going to be about the interracial differences. It was an African-American wife, and the husband was German. And it was also a focus on the two mothers. So one mother-in-law was German, the other mother-in-law was African-American. I thought it was going to be a conflict on the racial differences, and it actually wasn't. It was a conflict on how the mothers interacted with their adult children, right? And those adult children had grandkids now. Well, during the time of the conversation, the married couple, of course, had to get to have conversations with themselves on how they had interactions with their mothers when they were kids. And the young man began to de- uh, depose to his wife and mother-in-law an instance when he was a young man, and he was raped on his walk home as a young man from school. He eventually got home to tell his mother, but he downplayed it and told his mother that 
um, a guy just touched him and molested him. So for years, the mother thought it was just a touching and molesting issue. Again, never sought professional help, professional counseling for anything. I think um, a single mother at the time, she's just trying to make sure that he's okay. But then the topic of the conversation, the mother just, again, began to say, well, yes, I remember it happening. And it was at some point along the, the way of him getting home that the mother would always meet him on this walkway or walk path on his way home. Well, at this point, she was late from work or was not able to meet him, so he had to make the walk home by himself. And so he was actually grabbed along this walkway through like a park or something and was actually physically raped by the the guy that uh, abused him. So during the show, that's what he opposed to the mother. And the mother's reaction was really and truly as if she didn't hear it, but she immediately began to go into faulting the young man. Well, you never told me that that part ever happened. You only said that he molested you or he touched you. Well, if you had told me the rest of it, then I would have taken you to the doctor or taken you to the hospital or something. And so what he was trying to tell her is you did nothing in the moment, even with me telling you that I was just touched, other than saying I wasn't there to protect you, regardless of what the reason was. But I know I was late, and I know I couldn't meet you, and I was late getting home from work, and that's why I wasn't there. It was never a, and these are the points the other was bringing up, let me hold my child, let me console my child. I know I wasn't there. I know I was late. I, I, I just wasn't there. The same shutdown as what the young man was saying that he had when he initially told her. Uh-huh. What was that, Philip? What would the correct response to your child be? What should the response be? Yeah. Well, you know, actually, it's, it's what we think we want our mothers to do. Again, we're talking about our emotions. You're in a bad situation, and you go to your mother and say, hey, something bad happened to me, you would want your mother to hug you. You would want your mother to say and show some type of empathy or compassion about what just happened to you. But if they actually don't have the emotional tools to do that, they're either going to try to find fault in you that what happened to you was your fault. Or they, in my instance with my mother, as I asked her years ago, why did you allow our father to beat us so much? Why did you allow that to happen? Why did you allow him to beat you? I was actually able to get that out of her, and she didn't have an answer for him beating us. 
it was just kind of a shrug of the shoulders. But when I asked, why did you allow him to abuse you? Why did you let, why did you raise us in this environment? And she just kind of got quiet and went into herself and said, well, I never let you guys see that. I, I, I never let you guys see that. And to that point, she was right. Because their physical abuse were always, they would go into their bedroom, they would start the physical argument at any point in time in the yard or the house or whatever. They would eventually make them their way into their bedroom, and I could hear the beatings against the wall. You could hear furniture moving. You could hear stuff being thrown. But when they emerge from the bedroom, she's got a black eye. She's holding a, a towel to her mouth for a busted lip. Physically, we didn't see it, but we hear it and we see the aftermath of it. So again, in her head, she thinks she's protecting us from seeing it. So when you're being hurt, you want the same person that's your mother that gave you the bottle and gave you the diapers and coddled you and said, you're my baby and I love you. You expect some level of that when you're an older kid, when you're a teenager, even when you're an adult. You are my mother. I am coming to you with an issue. Where is the love and empathy and compassion? What's in empathy? What, can you give me an example of empathy and compassion, please? The reality is, Philip, over the years in my teachings and what has saved my emotional health is to look at things from a scientific view and a more logical view. The reality is, some of us are born with our brains not being fully developed and unhealthy. And one of those things in the brain that is responsible for you showing empathy and compassion is the amygdala. If it is for some reason not fully formed or not fully developed, they actually just do not have it in their physical DNA to show you compassion or empathy. They may even be at the age where they didn't have the education or the vocabulary of what those words meant, let alone to match it to their actions. It's something you study in sociopaths and psychopaths. So I'm not saying at any point any one of our parents were Jeffrey Dahmer-level psychopaths, right? The sociopath, though, however, has a lot of traits biologically um, and environmentally. The psychopath themselves has more traits in the brain where they just don't feel a sense of right and wrong because they have no compassion and no empathy. So when they're killing and stabbing a person, it doesn't resonate with them that what they're doing to that person is wrong versus them sitting down with that same knife and making a BLT sandwich and sitting down and eating it. And I use that as a very weird analogy, but that is actually what the Jeffrey Dahmer was doing in his lifetime over the course of years. He was killing young men, dissected them, had body parts hidden all over his house in his apartment, 
and he lived that existence day in and day out. He would get up, he would eat food, he would take a bath, go on about his regular day with murdered people, limbs, body parts all over his house, right? That's the psychopathic level of no empathy and no compassion. A sociopath has been exposed to no empathy and compassion more on an environmental level. It's been they learn to behave that way. Their environment has learned to do things differently. They won't ever learn the difference that their behavior is unempathetic, that they're not being compassionate, and that they can learn to be empathetic and compassionate. Like just changing their environment and see how other people react in similar situations. So we want the parent to love us, but if they don't have the tools to do it, or they in their head the loving that they think they're doing, they think that's enough. Again, as following Iyama over the years, you've got to understand that parents need to learn that we would hope as children that they are loving you and being the parent to you that they need you to be. They're not thinking about that because, again, you're a powerless, worthless, unvalued point. You become a burden to them, even though they decided to to have a baby. I have a meeting. I have to go. Say that again. Thank you, Monica. I have a meeting I have to go to. Okay. Thank you, Monica. Thanks, Philip. Bye. Thank you. Have a great one. I'll give the phone number in case someone wants to call in. The phone number is 646-595-2118. Again, that's 646-595-2118. And give us a call and talk to Monica and talk to me if you want, ask questions, make comments. Okay, Monica, back to you. So we've just got to be aware that they just may not have the tool to be the parent to us that we need. Point, we come in terms with that, and however deep you want to deal with it, it's up to you. If you're in a forgiving mode, you're just sort of putting it behind you mode, something. But again, I encourage all of us to forgive ourselves first because there's absolutely nothing we could have done different in that moment as that child was being abused. We know now that we could have done something different, reached back and saved ourselves to the parent, had a different reaction, told our teacher told another family member, maybe someone we could trust what was going on with us. But we also got to realize for some of us the world that we were living in at certain points in time. And for me as a young person, I can especially tell you, it wasn't a thing where parents, uh, people were showing up every day in our household as far as government agencies, like childhood protection agencies or something like that. They were around, you know. I could just check the timeline on when certain agencies were established. 
but they weren't around. Yep, you definitely, as a 12-year-old kid, didn't have a phone number, you know, to call and say, hey, my mother's abusing me. What do I do? Someone needs to come help me. I can actually remember my father saying to me at one point when I had this plot that I wanted to run away from home. And I actually went to a neighbor's house. A young lady and I were friends. And I saw something different in her relationship with her mom. Just her and her mom, just relationship. They talked about everything all the time. I just saw the loving and the warmth between her and her mother that I didn't see between my life. And I remember sitting out on the porch and didn't realize the mother was in the house and listening in on the conversation. Um, I don't know what it was. But I just remember tell, either that happened or my friend told the mother after the conversation what happened. But I remember telling my friend that I wanted to run away from home. And my plan was, like, I was going to pack a bag. I was going to wait till my parents get to sleep. I was going to sneak out of the house at a certain time. And her house would have been on the way at the top of the street or at the top of the block on where I wanted to leave and go. I didn't have a where I wanted to go. I was just running away. Told her, I've got to come by your house. I'm going to knock on your bedroom door, and I want you to come outside, and I can give you a hug and tell you that I'm leaving. You know, like something to that effect. So either the mother was at the door listening, or my friend told her after the fact what happened. I remember going back home, and either it was the next day, because I planned on doing it like uh, on some particular day that I knew that my parents were, like one parent would be at work and one parent would be at home. It's one of those rare days that both of them were at home. But it's going to be on one of those days that um, my father would be at home, but he would be asleep in the evening because he would have to get up and get ready for a night shift that he worked. So I remember that was going to be my day to escape. So maybe the day prior to that or a day or two, I remember. After we ate, we did our chores, we sat down, and we were watching TV or something like that. And I remember my dad coming to me and in a very quiet tone like voice, trying to explain to me all of the bad things and the bad horrors that would happen if I ever wanted to run away. If something ever happened so bad to you at home, you can always come to me and talk to me. I'm your dad, and let me know what's happening to you. But when kids run away, this is what happens to them, and that's what happens to them. And things are so much bad for them on the street as kids. So nothing is ever as bad as what's happening at home but when you're on the street by yourself. If you ever thought about running away, you need to try to come and talk to us first. Because if you run away, you know, there are bad men out there that they grab kids and they kidnap kids and they take them away. You don't ever see your family again. It's just, it's just the most bizarre thing ever to come out of the blue. And 
that was his way of talking me out of running away, right? So I did make the effort to run away. But what I did was I had to have it a few times. Uh, again, that parent would be at home late at night, maybe they're asleep, and you kind of know how to move around them and not make a lot of noise when they're asleep. And it happened a couple more times where I would leave out of the house at night and I would go to my friend's house and knock on the door and say, hey, can you come outside and talk? And so I guess that it happened more than a couple times where the mother, I'm thinking the mother is asleep, where the mother, her, my friend's mother, finally would get up and say, you know, it's too late for you guys to be out. And it was not super really crazy late, maybe 9 o'clock at night going on 10. But the street's quiet. You know, the kids should be getting ready for bed. And um, it's just past our bedtime. And so that's eventually what I realized. She just told me, she's like, Monica, you can't keep coming here like this. I don't allow Tawanda to be out at this time of night, and I know your parents don't allow you to be out at this time of night. And she gave me that, if you don't stop doing this, I'm going to call your parents and tell them type of thing, right? So, of course, that was always the big threat. If my parents knew, I'm going to get in trouble. That's what made me realize. The talk about me basically running away was my friend had told her mom and then her mom had called and told my parents that, hey, Monica's been here talking to my child about running away or whatever, blah, blah, blah. I don't know how deep the conversation went, but it was enough of that. But it was one of those times that I'm thinking I'm going to get in trouble, which getting in trouble came with some sense of abuse. And it didn't happen. I didn't get hit. I didn't get abused. But my father was extremely manipulative and basically gaslighted me. <laughs> so he told me about all of these weird things that could happen to me if I ran away from home by other people. But if I had him thinking, how much worse could it be when you beat me yourself at home? You do these things to me. So how much worse can it be on the street? And, again, it was that type of um, growing up a household in a standard middle-class household. It was much more important for my parents to appear to be good people and appear to have a good family than to actually do the things to be a good person and to make sure you had a good and nurturing family. So we get beat, we get abused in the house, but out in the world, we were picture perfect. We were taught how to act, taught how to behave. You don't speak about this, and you don't tell about this in my house, and you better not say this, and you better not tell me this. We were constantly put under threat, always. But we had to do that. I said that my mother answered the question on why was my dad abusive? And why did you bring us up in this household? Why did you do that? Why did you not get help? Why did you not leave? Her response was, but you guys had everything you wanted. You had the best shoes. You had the best clothes. You had everything you wanted. And I had to stop her. I said, I'm not asking you things you bought. I'm not talking to you about anything of monetary value. I'm asking you, why did you allow him to actually hurt us? 
and you never got help. The only thing my mother would do when we were young, but it never happened when he was abusing us because it was in her head, we were just being disciplined. But when the abuse against her got to be too much, she would always pack us up as young kids and would run down to her grandmother's house. And her grandmother actually raised her. It wasn't her mother. So she had a little bit of sense of refuge. That was her tool. I'm going to take the kids away from you, and I'm going to go to grandmother's for a day or so. And, again, that was a bad look. When the wife is leaving with the kids, that was a bad look to the neighbors, right? So he would do whatever he had to do to placate the situation, to, I don't know, bribe my mother with a new dress, or do this, or do that, plead that he wasn't going to do anymore, I'll be on my best behavior. Uh, my grandmother, I then, my mother stayed in that relationship because my father also financially supported my grandmother. And she knew that if my mother ever really left the situation or divorced him, my grandmother would not have that income coming in. So it was my grandmother kind of manipulated my mother on that end as well. But when my great-grandmother finally died, my mother had nowhere to go. She had nowhere to run to. We were getting older at kids at that point, and my mother did develop a few relationships on her own, girlfriends or whatever. And um, she would maybe go leave and spend her time with them. I got to go grocery shopping. Instead of a maybe regular hour-long grocery shop, it would turn into four hours because later to me, on a few times that I would go with her on these excursions from the home, we would end up at a girlfriend's house of hers. And I'd go play with her kids or something. My sister and I go play with her kids. And she'd spend her time in the kitchen with the girlfriend. And then we eased up on the conversation. And I could hear my mother telling the girlfriend about the fight, about this. So my dad did this, so my dad did that. So she did find another sense of refuge in some of her friends. But it was never anything of her actually developing the tools to actually stop or leave the situation of what actually happened. So she herself didn't have the emotional tools to deal with her own marriage as an adult, but she didn't have the tools to deal with us as children, unfortunately. So, again, the emotional endurance with us is we're going to have to learn how to make it out of the childhood. So we've done that right. So now we're into adulthood. I want to talk briefly on what we can do in adulthood to make sure that we are enduring these emotional ups and downs that we're having. One of them is if we are not showing self-compassion to ourselves, we need to do that. Again, forgive yourself for being a kid who couldn't do anything to protect yourself. Forgive yourself. We've got to learn to start to love ourselves. Because if we have a lack of compassion for ourselves, it's just the trait that we picked up from that incompassionate parent that actually made us feel that we were unworthy and we were unloved. And we were not able to do anything about it at that time. Start to show compassion towards yourself. 
in adulthood if we are overreacting to any sense of conflict. It could be the same trait that we picked up at that parent. If you approach them, confront them, for lack of a better word, about any of the abuse that went on, they're going to scream, they're going to yell, they're going to do whatever they can to, to deflect away from actually having a conversation. It's painful for them to think about what they did to you. It's painful if, if, if they're in any sense of being remorseful and they have their own guilt. To actually speak about the guilt means it feels like you're regurgitating something. You know, it hurts to bring up those memories. It hurts to bring up those thoughts. But you got to, we've had to deal with it. We had to deal with the actual impact of the actual abuse. So if we've had to deal with the actual impact of the abuse, you still expect that mother or that father or that parent or that older person that hurt you, they were already older at that point when you went to the abuse, right? So they're even older now. So we're still looking at them as being an older, more wiser person. That's what you're supposed to do when you're an adult. That's what happens when you're busy screaming, I'm an adult. You're the child. You don't speak to me that way. That's what happens when you proclaim your adulthood. So we're thinking you have the tools to deal with this. But if they scream and yell, they're going to do everything that they can to deflect away from after answering the questions or revisiting the incident. That's something we've also learned to do ourselves. So if you have trouble dealing with conflict, that's something we have to work on as an adult. Learn better tools to deal with conflict. Try not to deflect from the situation. Hear the person that's bringing the conflict with you, right? Hear their words. Hear their, hear their voices. Think about your own words before you respond. Don't be so reactive in the moment. But hear the person digest what they're saying, come up with a clear, effective response, and respond to the person in a clear way. That you're just not yourself deflecting from the situation or you feel I'm being attacked, so I've got to go on the defense. So as adults, again, ourselves, we've got to learn tools that were not taught to us in our childhood. All right. And that's what we have NASCAR for, to help us learn these tools. Awesome. Exactly. Call in to any scan. Uh, check the website for responses, uh, for any resources, guys. We're here for you. Okay. And we still have... You have... Go ahead, and I was going to say, we still have time if you want to call in. The phone number is 646 one one eight. Go ahead, Monica. All right. Awesome. If anyone has any self doubt or negative self talk, if you're trying to achieve certain things in life, you got certain goals that you're going after in life. Certain things you're trying to change. Maybe you are moving away from the abusive parents, the abusive situation. You live in a new city. You're trying a new job. You know, some of the emotions from what happened to us as kids are going to carry over to adults. That negative self-talk.
self-talk and the self-doubt that we have that we can't do certain things, guys, it's not us that's actually believing that. It's the ghost of our past would tell us, oh, you can't do that. You're not going to be any good at that. It's the ghost, again, of their neglect, emotional neglect. And again, we're in this thing of healing. We're in it for the long haul. That's why it's called emotional endurance. We're in it for the long haul. So in our emotional healing and along that journey, I encourage all of you to try to prioritize your self-care and your self-compassion. Do whatever the freak it is you need to do to impart joy and love into your own life. Do the things you love to do. Hang around and meet new friends and be around the people that love you and they love you back. That means you may need to get a new group of friends and get away from the old group of friends. You may need to distance yourself from family and stop talking to family. But you've got to do it in a way that it's going to be helpful for you and that's going to be an enormous part of your healing. We also have to remember again, friends, that it's a marathon. It's not a sprint as far as our healing journey. We're in it for the long haul. I'm almost 50 years old. Very, very seldom do I have a memory of what happened or if I'm in communication of the people that abused me, like with my parents, that I used to have a crying breakdown after I interacted with them. I did that a lot in my 20s. Because in my 20s, I wasn't strong enough to talk to them about the abuse. But as I'm growing as a young woman and out living on my own, that I still need to call and ask my parents for help or do this or do that, they're just in argumentative mode just negative to just whatever, unnurturing, not helpful at all. I remember just ending conversations with them, and I would just fall into a heap of tears. As I get older, it, it, it's the Band-Aid begins to rip off, and you have less and less of a pain about it. They Band-Aid off because you know that wound is healed a little bit. You're going to have to ouch for ripping it off but the Band-Aid becomes a little less and less of an ouch as you move through your healing journey. And hopefully you put in enough time and space and distance between yourself. You may not ever get the answers from your abusers as to why they abuse you. But and they will never do anything, in a very rare case, they will never do anything to help you heal because they're still in the negative mode, they don't believe their negativity is negativity. They don't believe the abuse that they did was abusive. you got to remember, the behavior was learned somewhere, as any behavior. Someone taught us how to hold a spoon as a kid. Someone taught us how to use a fork to eat. Someone taught us how to say mama and dada and start to mimic those words so we could learn to say our ABCs and we could learn to form a sentence. Someone had to teach us that. Someone had to teach our abusers how to abuse. That's the the only sense of this person is not getting any better. 
They're not going to do anything else because this is honestly the only way that they think that they need to behave because this is what someone taught them to do, and they never learned any different behavior. They never bothered to learn it because I know the way that I feel and the negativity and how bad it made me feel. If I'm feeling that way, I know that they felt that way at some point. But they've also learned to mask the behavior and bury it and not speak about it. So, unfortunately, we'll never do it. So we can't seek solace sometimes in those that hurt us. So make sure you're surrounding yourself with people that love you and appreciate you, accept you for who you are. All right, one last thing is I want us to understand that you also don't have to be 100% healed in order to improve the quality of your life. We may still have a few hurts. We may still have a few memories of what happened. But you don't have to be there 100%. So like that scar that you got on your knee as a kid when you fell off the bike, that scar, you may see that scar there a little bit for the rest of your life. So it's not 100% healed. But that scar also, you remember falling off the bike, but you don't actually remember the pain as in-depth as you did when you were that eight- or nine-year-old kid, when you just thought the end of your world and you're just screaming for, for whatever to make it go away. You're screaming for that mom and dad to hold you and help you and heal you to make it go away. You don't have that exact same emotional response because at some point we are growing and healing. The scar may still remain, which means it's not 100% healed, but you don't have to have the same reactive response as you did when the initial encounter happened, that that means, if that makes any sense. But it should be a reminder to you that I'm capable of healing. I'm capable of moving on. You have strength enough in yourself, conviction enough in yourself, compassionate enough for yourself. You love yourself enough to know that I've been hurt, I've been neglected, I've been abused, but I can heal. I can move on. I can love myself. So at that point, I'll turn it over to you, Annie. Does any of that make sense to us <laughs> how we can start to take some of those adult traits, things in a more positive way, as a way for us to combat the negative things that happened in our childhood? Mm-hmm. I do a lot of positive things for myself to make myself, you know, self-compassion kinds of things, like I crochet just to wind down a little bit, and I garden a lot, and I'll just sit and pet my cat for a while, just sit there and pet the cat, and and that's a wonderful thing. I, I never used to let myself just sit, but now I do. Um, I, I, want, I want to say in response to Monica that healing is possible. I know healing is possible because I have healed so much. I used to be a person who hid in the bathtub and would not interact with anyone, certainly never leave the house. I was very mentally ill. I had terrible social anxiety. But I've been working on the idea that I was abused for about 15 years now. And I am so much better. I have a good life. I have new friends. 
I don't interact with abusive people anymore. If they're abusive to me, they're out of my life. And that's all there is to it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I just want to, I just want people to know there really is hope. You really can have a better life. You really can. And we have just over four minutes left. Um, so I, I have to play the song in the last minute. So we still have three. We have three minutes, Monica. I want to let everyone know if you need to reach out to me, you can reach me on uh, Instagram. I have a new page there. It's called MSB PHA Healer. Miss B the Healer. I call myself the Trauma Queen um, because I want people to reach out if they need to. Um, I put several posts up. I try to put up inspirational posts. Um, I try to, uh, of course, post about anything we're doing with NASCA. Um, it's a great way for you to reach out to me over the Internet. You can do it more um, anonymously if you want. Uh, send me a private message or a DM there. Um, I'm really, truly trying to get that page kicked up more. So I can eventually start inviting people into the page. And if we want, we can start doing a live chat session. You know, you could put yourself on an emoji or something like that. You don't have to show your face or anything. But if you just want to speak a little bit more in depth or live about anything that I posted, you want to like a post, you want to comment on a post, please follow me on Instagram. Miss Be the Teacher, the Tribal Queen. With regards to my next session on NASCA, I'm on on every fourth Thursday of the month. And if you would like to send me a topic or discussion that maybe you don't want to call in, you don't want to really have your voice or anything heard, send it to me ahead of time at 678-632-1098. Text me. Of course, send a text to let me know that you are a NASCA member and uh, you want to speak about this or you want to speak about that. If it's going to be uh, anything that's not specific in my topic, it doesn't matter. Get your question in to me, text it to me, and I'll make sure that we'll speak about it on air. And again, all of you out there, I want to let you know that none of the abuse that we endure is your fault. It's never your fault. So forgive yourself. Love yourself. Start right now with loving yourself. And be compassionate and forgiving towards yourself. And again, know that our emotional healing or this journey is going to be an emotional endurance. We're in this for the long haul, guys. The older we get, the more we got to learn ourselves, love ourselves, and we got to live in this life, unfortunately, with the tragedies that have happened to us. But as Eddie said, you, it will get better. You will have better quality of life. You will have better friends. You will have better friendships. You will have better relationships. Improve the relationships with your children if you need to. Apologize to people if you feel you've hurt other people. Take the initiative and apologize for them. It will get better, I promise. I promise. I Take promise, too. Awesome. Okay. Well, let me just wrap it up. Um, you've been listening to Monica Boglin, and I'm Annie Marges. I'm on Tuesdays and Thursdays here on the NASCAR radio show, Scan, Stop Child Abuse Now. 
This has been um, radio show number 3189, and all of our shows are recorded and archived on our website, so you can listen to them at any time. The website is nasca.org, and nasca is spelled N-A-A-S-C-A. It stands for National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. And with that, I'm going to take you out with our theme music. Good night. Good night, everyone. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.